The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, my guest is Deirdre Birmingham. Deirdre and I met in St. Louis at the 2009 Farm Aid concert. She has an organic apple orchard and vintage cider business in Wisconsin. She chairs the Citizens Advisory Council for the Center for Integrated Agricultural Systems at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She ran the Midwest Organic Tree Fruit Growers Network, served on the Governor's Organic Task Force in Wisconsin, and was the first executive director of Georgia Organics. I think what's interesting is that before farming, Deirdre worked in developing country agriculture, particularly in Africa. She holds a master's degree in agronomy and a joint Ph.D. in adult education and land resource management. She also serves as the president of the Organic Farming Research Foundation Board, of which I am honored to serve on well. Deirdre, welcome. Well, we're happy to have you on that board of directors, Melinda. And uh, when we first met... That I was at the Organic Farming Research Foundation booth, so it was interesting that a year later you wound up being on the board with us. And I remember asking you a gazillion questions, including, would you be on my radio program? <laughs> well, That's it, right. We're finally making it happen. We are. Well, I have to ask you, you know, of course, I'm very interested in organic food production, and it really stems from the public health connection and, of course, the latest cancer panel report that came out from the president that says we really should be buying foods that have not been sprayed with harmful pesticides. So I think my first question that I'd like to ask you is, what does it mean to be an organic apple grower? Well, it's basically a systems approach to the orchard. And I see this differently when I'm around. And I learn from other apple growers who aren't necessarily organic. Um, I I respect all apple growers because it's tough no matter what system you use. But they might manage things individually, like manage this insect and that insect and then have their soil fertility program and then have their disease program. And But when you think in a systems approach, you in, you're integrating all those things. Because what you do often, the way I choose to handle the vegetation growing underneath the trees affects the soil fertility, it affects the weeds, it affects diseases, it affects insects. So when I, whenever I'm doing something, I'm thinking of the whole system. The whole ecosystem. Yes. I, I look at the orchard in a holistic sense. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I, I had recently visited an orchard, uh, an organic producer, Dan Kelly, who I believe you know. Yes. At Blue Heron Orchard. And I witnessed exactly what you said. He had planted some Queen Anne's lace in between his trees because they attracted a beneficial insect that would target one of the pests that were hurting his trees. And Dan's a very good grower. I've learned from Dan. And that is exactly what you want to do. And so our orchards won't look the most highly manicured because we're allowing diverse vegetation to grow in the orchard, in the alleyways, between the tree rows, and even in the tree tree rows. The last couple of years I've had even echinacea, the purple coneflower, growing in the row with the trees. <laughs> I thought... Something here is going is going right. It must be um, beautiful. And the University of Wisconsin Madison is conducting pollinator research, looking at native 
or wild bees, and they've noted that in my orchard I seem to have a diverse spectrum of them and have them very much throughout the growing season, which is which is what you want to have. So. Now, are apples dependent upon bees for pollination? They are dependent upon bees in the general sense of wild bees and as well as domesticated bees. The honeybees, which most people are familiar with, actually aren't the best pollinators because they need very nice conditions to work. They like it to be warm and sunny and not very windy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the springtime when our trees are blooming, we often we have days that aren't very nice either. And maybe those blossoms are only there for a few days. So uh, it's very important to have a diverse population of wild bees or native pollinators, as they're called. And there's just scads of them. They think in Wisconsin there's maybe five to 600 different bees. So by creating habitat for them or conserving habitat that they're already using, you can greatly enhance your pollination. And the reason that a lot of orchards rely on honeybees being brought in is because of the pesticides that are used. So various insecticides will kill off a lot of insects, including including wild bees. Mm-hmm. So that's since they've killed those populations off, then they need to bring um, honeybees back in. And you can cart honeybees in and out, but you can't cart the wild ones in and out, right. the domesticated ones. And so that's where in an organic system we use much less toxic things. It's It's good to note that in an organic system, pesticides are still used, but they are different in nature. The ones I use are biodegradable. So, uh, in fact, they don't have a long residue, and at times I might have to spray them more often than somebody who's spraying a highly toxic one whose residue might last 10 days or two weeks. And I also would be careful not to spray ones that could harm honeybees at times that they're present in the orchard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is a common misconception that people have, that the organic producers do have an arsenal of compounds. They just aren't as toxic. They don't come from fossil fuel sources, and they're not going to be as noxious to the ecosystem, which you also described earlier about how we want to protect the whole system. Right. And those are, and that's on an approved list, right? That's called the OMRI list. Yes, uh, the Organic Materials Review Institute does review different materials that people might want to use in a in an organic system, and they check a lot for synthetics and also how the production of that pesticide or soil amendment, whatever might go into an organic farming system, um, even how that was produced. So, is it does its production of that compound have any negative impact? So, it's it's also a holistic look at the inputs one might use in an organic farming system. Now, there are some products that have labels on them, like True Earth or EcoFruit. What do those labels tell the consumer? Well, most likely they are not using some of the most toxic pesticides, such as organophosphates, and those basically are neurotoxins. And they work well on insects because they affect their nervous system. Mm-hmm. But the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has been trying to get those pesticides out of farming uses for some years now. 
And so they've had, for example, warnings that in 2011 or 2012, either you will have to use something at a very reduced rate because we're phasing it out, and then there'll be a point, <clears throat> excuse me, where then you would no longer be able to use it at all. And so organic, organophosphates are in there, are, are of highest priority to them. So those orchards probably do not use them. And there is, in the Midwest here, or in Wisconsin specifically, the EcoApple Project at the University of Wisconsin and run by that Center for Integrated Agricultural Systems that you mentioned I, um, I'm involved with. And they are helping farmers, wherever they're at with their pesticide application, to reduce it. So mm-hmm. you work on your own system and move it on the spectrum so that you're using less materials and you're using them more wisely and you're removing some of the most toxic from your system. Mm-hmm. But it by no means is is near organic. So mm-hmm. it's still a, a world apart from an organically managed system. You know, you mentioned something very interesting early on, and that was when if I were to come and visit your orchard, what I would see is maybe on the surface, something that looked unkempt because you'd have all these companion plants going on within the orchard. And I think that that's a good parallel to what consumers see when they buy an apple. We have to, I think, teach consumers that the perfect-looking apple is not the best for our children and our, our personal and public health. And that maybe a few spots on an apple or some blemishes are less of a problem to health than, say, a neurotoxin residue. Oh, exactly. Because often those blemishes have no impact on health and they're strictly cosmetic. Yeah. Um, And in fact, towards the end of the season, growers will use fungicides to reduce these late summer diseases but they are actually just on the surface of the apple, and some of them can literally be scrubbed off. Right. But in this last year where it was rainy, you had more of that. So if you see that on an apple, it can almost be a good sign. (laughs) That's what I say, (laughs) too. Maybe that they didn't use the fungicides at all, or maybe not as, as much as they might have to completely avoid that. And there's some scars that some insects can create. But their their eggs or whatever are no longer in the fruit. They were uh, sometimes they're deposited when the fruit is just like a pea size, and if the fruit grows, it just crushes whatever that little female insect laid, and there's no trace of it. Mm-hmm. So, but it leaves a scar on the outside of the fruit, and um, then that fruit has to be discounted since that's the also the grading standards that are used based on what consumers are looking for. So, right, it can be diametrically opposed. <laughs> we need to have a- with uh, uh, what you might be trying to the health you're trying to promote in your family. We need to have a campaign to buy ugly fruit. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> yes, yes, that's a that's a good one. Love that ugly fruit. <laughs> buy ugly fruit and it save was loved your- by the grower. Exactly, love you for it too. Save your children's brain cells. Well, let me piggyback on that topic and ask you what some of the biggest challenges you face are in the marketplace as well as in the orchard. You know, when I go to the farmer's market and I do make these comments, I ask, you know, have you sprayed your fruit? What do you spray them? What do you spray your trees with? And and I get this long list of, of pesticides and fungicides, and I think, oh, gosh. And what the farmer usually tells me is that, you know, they feel like they have to use these products, otherwise their fruit will not sell. 
And my perception then as a consumer, as a dietitian, as an advocate, is that that seems to be one of the biggest challenges. Tell me what your challenges are. Well, it is a challenge to grow tree fruit east of the Rockies. We have more humidity and we, we also have hot summers and we have some insects and diseases they simply don't have in western states. So organic producers of apples, for example, cannot compete with Washington State organic apples. They grow those in a near desert condition. They're on the west, or excuse me, the east side of the mountains and they irrigate and they don't have that humidity and they don't have some of the major insects that, and they don't have scab that we have here. So it's just a whole lot easier and it reduces their expenses. They do have that one insect that causes the proverbial worm in the apple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they didn't get free from that one. But, uh, what is, what is used to combat that is actually nothing you even apply to the apple. And it's just a pheromone. It's just something that is released into the air and it confuses the male moths from mating with the females. So they can't mate, so the females can't, they can't find a female, so they don't mate, and then the females don't lay their eggs in the, on the trees, and then you don't get worms hatching and crawling into the, um, into the apple. So that's a real, that was developed for organic growers some years ago, and it has moved into production systems that weren't even organic because because of the benefits of not having to spray, and it has enabled Washington to go from four or five apple orchards to now 10% of the apples grown in the the state are organic. So they are providing a lot more apples at a reduced cost, but they can't do all the same varieties as people in the Midwest. So if you want some of those local varieties or heritage varieties, then you need to be sourcing with your local organic grower. And and they are, I have one organic grower friend who said that some of his best customers are those who also try to, they have an apple tree or two in their backyard, and they just marvel at how wonderful his apples are because they can't get their apples to, to look or taste that good. Absolutely. So, um, you know, and there, and you can't just let an, an apple tree go because they are trees that require a lot of, a lot of maintenance. And there are insects that will just, if they bombard that, that apple too much, they will, you know, it's beyond cosmetic. They can actually ruin the fruit or create conditions and where rot can enter. So, so you, you will, you can't ever get into a no spray or low spray situation really. And, and all, a lot of it just depends upon the year and the, and the growing season and what it, you know, what kind of weather conditions it, it brings. Whether you, there's a lot of rain or a lot of heat or um, whatever, each year is different. So I find each year to be instructive. Deirdre, I have to interrupt you one moment just to take a little break and remind our listeners that we are speaking with Deirdre Birmingham. She has an organic apple orchard and vintage cider business in Wisconsin. She worked in developing countries with agriculture, especially in Africa. She holds a master's degree in agronomy and a joint Ph.D. in adult education and land resource management. And she is the president of the Organic Farming Research Foundation Board. And I wanted to speak with Deirdre because I believe that organic agriculture 
really is the answer to feeding the world and in a way that is non-toxic and will protect our ecosystem and the commons, all of our natural resources. I have to go back and ask you about something you mentioned. You said heirloom varieties. I get really excited about heirloom varieties, not just because of their taste. You know, that's that's a reason to eat them to begin with. What a wide variety of these little tiny nuances of flavor change, but also because I think that each one of those different varieties offers a different whole spectrum of health-promoting nutrients that we haven't even discovered yet. And I get so disappointed sometimes when I go to the grocery store and I see the same old, you know, four or five varieties, boring, ho-hum, and then I go to a farmer's market in a community say, a brand-new community that I've never visited, and I find all of these different apples at the market. And it's very exciting. So how many different varieties do you grow? I have about 12 different varieties that I'm I'm growing in a commercial way. Um, I have a few other varieties I might just grow for our own interest. But my varieties, since you mentioned the vintage cider business, I'm growing mostly the wine grapes of apples. So that means I have apples that are high in tannins or mm. high in acids. They're very, very tart. So you might not want to pull one off the tree and just chomp into it. <laughs> they make good pies, though. I have one variety that is also a culinary apple from uh, from England, and that is called Bramley Seedling. But otherwise, um, these tannic or acidic, or sometimes they have both apples that are sort of like wine wine grapes, and that um, they're they're good for fermenting. They have qualities that add to a uh, good mouthfeel and complexity for the finished product. And the the vintage cider business is something we'll, we hope to start in a year or two. Our orchard is very young, and so it's the first apples uh, showed up in 2009, which was exciting. And we had more apples this year, but um, every year I'm I'm grafting, making new trees, and then we're planting more trees out of our tree nursery, and uh, we're gradually expanding. So we'll always have new trees coming online. What made you get started with an apple orchard? Well, we really like the traditional cider. Some people call it hard cider. Mm -hmm. It's the original American beverage, and it's just, probably one of the most refreshing beverages. There's evenings where I think, hmm, I don't really want a beer, I don't really want a glass of wine, but a cider would be great. So it, uh, it's made like a wine. Uh, you know, it's fermented with it with yeast, but it's, a, it's its own product. And it's a lower alcohol product. It might have more the alcohol content of beer, being like 5 or at most 7%. Um, but it's made in a wine-like manner, whereas wine is usually at least 9%, if not 12 to 14%. So um, so some say you can have a cider while, with dinner and still read the newspaper afterwards. <laughs> That's great. Well, tell me something. How many, how many markets do you have for the cider right now? I'm assuming that you're selling it locally in your Wisconsin markets, but what about if people listening from all over the country want to have a taste of your cider? Well, we are, we will be in the artisanal category, so we would be selling in Wisconsin first and then moving into, uh, we would be looking next at the Chicago market. We're based in southern Wisconsin, more towards the western side, so Dubuque could be a possibility, and also moving further north into the Twin Cities, 
But uh, it's interesting that every state you want to sell into, you have to get a license and you have to pay a fee. So at least we're already in Wisconsin because I understand from other people trying to get into our markets, they have one of the highest fees. I think it's like $1,000 a year to get the privilege to sell your product there. So um, Is that because it's an alcoholic product? Yes. Because okay. of the, yeah, so it's very regulated. I see. Well, you could have your local brew pubs maybe offering yes, this Yes, oh, exactly. They're they're waiting for it. Yeah, I'll bet they are. You know, <laughs> they I mean, are. We have lots of friends uh, waiting for it. Lots of people have offered to be tasters. And, absolutely. And uh, we also are in a great area for uh, cheese making. Mm. Some of the uh, world's best cheeses are 20, 30 minutes from our farm. And so one of the best foods to pair with cider is cheese. What a beautiful culinary. Yeah, to have lots of fun with, with that. It's a beautiful culinary pairing, really. Cheese mm-hmm. and cider. I have to uh, also mention something I had heard Dr. Alex Hu speak. He's with the public health school in at Harvard, and he spoke in Boston at the American Dietetic Association meeting. And he was mentioning the old adage, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And I'm going back to the pesticide issue now. And he said... You know, that's true, but you don't want to consume fruit that's been sprayed with these harmful pesticides. And he was indeed talking about the organophosphates. But I also want to ask you about this whole notion of EPA-approved pesticides. What does it mean if it's got that approval rating on it? Well, there actually isn't any such thing as EPA-approved, as in like a good housekeeping seal of approval Right. Um, the EPA labels products, and so they will provide a, a label that a, a, a certain pesticide is allowed to be used on a particular crop or, or, or set of crops and at the following rates. And so they go about approving or providing labels. And so if an, if a pesticide can be later found, let's say, to then be more environmentally negative or human health negative than they had anticipated, and so they can remove that label. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no such thing as an EPA-approved product. That's good for a consumer to know. We have It's also uh, helpful to know, too, that because... A, a pesticide loses its label does not mean it's not going to be used. Oh. Once, once something, or once a pesticide is produced, somebody's going to use it someplace. Hmm. A company has invested money in the development of that product and in manufacturing it, and so they'll want to see the final step of distribution and, and getting some money for it happen. Hmm. Growers who've already paid for the product want to be able to use it. So I have I have been in situations where when I was a crop scout, I was warned not to go into certain fields because they did use that product that they were just using up but weren't supposed to be using. Mm. I forgot one time and wound up in the emergency room three times in 13 hours. So wow. it was good that, that 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 product did lose its label. That's very and then <clears throat> also when I worked internationally, I would see products on the shelves there that I knew were banned in the U.S. Mm. One product that people know uh, widely is DDT Sure, that was sold in the shop windows in, in Kenya where I worked. Mm. 
Well, I, this has been a fascinating discussion, and we just have one minute left. So I want to give you a chance to leave our listeners with a message that perhaps about a topic maybe that I didn't or forgot or neglected to ask you. Well, just one thing that I thought of as we were talking was when you when foods have been improved or developed, like a lot of our fruits and vegetables, the last thing that's thought of is nutrition. So when you were talking about the heirloom varieties, you know, sometimes they may be more nutritious because they have been breeding uh, fruits and vegetables for other things like ease of harvest or transport or shelf life or appearance. And they weren't always monitoring what about the nutrient contents. And so they have looked at some modern varieties of wheat, for example, and found out that they are significantly lower in nutritional qualities than some of the previous varieties. Mm -hmm. And there's also some examples in the, in the produce category as well. So that's another plug for growing or buying locally some of those heirloom varieties and also buying organically from your organic grower who really struggles to do the best they can and to bring to the consumer a high quality product. And it, it just gives us more reason why dietitians and farmers need to be working together to, for public health and to save our natural resources. I want to thank you so much for your work in this field, Deirdre. And I want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Deirdre Birmingham. She has an organic apple orchard and vintage cider business in Wisconsin. Sounds like a great excuse for a road trip to Wisconsin to me. She also ran the Midwest Organic Tree Fruit Growers Network. She served on the Governor's Organic Task Force in Wisconsin. She was the first executive director of Georgia Organics. She holds a master's in agronomy and a joint PhD in adult education and land resource management. And finally, she's serves as president of the Organic Farming Research Foundation Board. Deirdre, thank you so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure, Melinda. And I wanted to thank our listeners, too, for tuning in and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.